a lot like Christmas. And it is, at least here for, uh, for Minnesota. We've had our first official real deep snowfall today, right? And, you know, we've also seen other uh, evidences that it just seems like our society is, is trying to start Christmas earlier and earlier. You know, Amazon trying to get their edge on the curve on, on Black Friday. Um, you know, Starbucks has put out the red cup again, only it's a little more festive this year. Yeah, Costco was selling uh, Christmas trees even before Thanksgiving. But it creates a whole slew of questions, right? When is it appropriate to start playing Christmas music? When is it appropriate to put up your Christmas tree? When is it uh, appropriate to wear that festive Christmas sweater, or ugly Christmas sweater, as the case may be, make Christmas cookies? And when is it appropriate to put up Christmas lights? In our society, it's an indication that Christmas is on the way. And in a time where the days get shorter, the nights are longer, you wake up and it's dark, you come home and it's dark, I think everyone appreciates um, those lights. Whether it's lights on a, on a roof line, whether it's lights uh, in the front yard, illuminating decorations, although I've got a neighbor who's got flashing lights, I think, I could have a seizure going past the thing, you know. It's just a little bit crazy. You know, but candles on an advent wreath or on a dinner table or in the window, I think there is an appreciation about light. Light gives visibility. Light gives guidance. Light brings beauty, warmth, and hope. And the Christmas story abounds with light. As we read earlier today, when the angel of the Lord shows up, the glory of the Lord shines in the middle of the night. And it is a star that guides these magi, these pagans who don't know anything about who God is, and guide them to the Christ child. And even for those who would rather mix up Jesus with Santa and Rudolph and just kind of put him in the background or, or eliminate him altogether, I think light speaks something to them, something deep within us. Because we're all wondering, is there someone or something out there greater with whom I'm meant to connect with? Someone or something greater out there who wants to care for me and give me guidance? Is there someone greater out there who can deal with the brokenness and pain we see all around us? what we call darkness in this world. Is there someone out there who can deal with the brokenness and pain and darkness we find in ourselves? You know, the first recorded command we have from the Lord God is let there be light. And God is in the business of shining light into the darkness. And today we're going to show how He wants to show his light into the darkness of our lives and our hearts. So let me pray for us. And we're going to be in two places in Scripture today. So you want to have one finger in Isaiah chapter 9 and one finger in the Gospel of John chapter 1. So my voice is a little growly today. I may have to stop for a, a sip. So but bear with me. Let me pray and we'll get started here. So Lord, we are grateful for this Christmas season where we remember that you came for us. 
And now as we turn our hearts toward your word, would you show us the promise that you gave us to shine our lights, lights in our hearts. And open the eyes of our hearts that we may see your glory today. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Jesus who's made all of this possible. And so we say thank you and ask you to be glorified in the proclaiming of your word today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start with a promise. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. These words came to the people of Judah or Israel about 740 B.C. And it was a dark time. There was no problem with the sun working or their lamps. But it was a dark time because of their current reality. The kingdom was diminishing. They were losing ground to other nations. And they were uncertain about the future. What would those other nations do? And what did the future hold for the people of God? And even greater darkness was there was a failure of God's people to, to keep God's word and to pursue Him. After 1300 years of a history, a robust history of dealing with a living God who had called them, who had sustained them, who had delivered them over and over again, the people still seemed to remain unfaithful, unbelieving, untrusting, distracted by gods of other nations and disobedient. Disobedient to the point where they ignored God and His Word and disobedient to the point where they were abusing one another. And even during Jesus' time, there was a, a sense of darkness, evil, ignorance, excuse me, during Jesus' day, uh, there was violence, justice, abuse of power, homelessness, refugees, fleeing oppression, families being ripped apart, bottomless grief. Sounds a lot like today. In the Bible, darkness is symbol symbolizes evil, ignorance, the inability to see, and a sense of gloom. The world can be a very dark place. Yet there remains this promise of a light to come. But there is a problem. There is a problem. There's a problem that we cannot generate light ourselves. So look back in chapter 8. Because this is what precedes chapter 9. This is the problem with God's people here. Verse 19. When someone tells you to consult the mediums and spiritualists and spiritists who whisper and mutter, who should, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to the word, they do not, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land and they, they are famished and they will become enraged and look upward and curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust 
into utter darkness. This is an illustration of people looking to their own resources to deal with their darkness. Let's look, pick it up again in verse 19 and 8. They consult mediums and spiritualists. They're consulting people they consider spiritual experts rather than inquiring and following of the living God. And or verse 20, consulting God's instruction to the testimony of warnings. And remember, this is a people whom God has given his word. He's given them his law. And yet they're consulting other things. And the result is that they have no light of dawn. Verse 21, they're distressed and hungry. They'll roam through the land, but when they are famished, they will become enraged and looking up toward, uh, up, upward will curse their king and their God. God, you did this to us. You did this to us. It's your fault. And the result is that they will see distress, darkness, excuse me, verse 22. Then they will look toward the earth, again, look toward their own resources, with the result being they will only see distress, darkness, fearful gloom, and be thrust into outer darkness. If you're a history buff, especially looking back on the 20th century, history teaches us that mankind, in all of his advancement, in science and technology, education, systems of government, standard of living, still is unable to save himself from the darkness within. But Clay Havel, who was the first president of the Czech Republic, had a very interesting perspective. He lived through World War II, through communism, and then becoming a democratic republic, so to speak. He saw in World War II that science, those unguided by moral principles, brought the Holocaust. He saw the moral bankruptcy of socialism and capitalism, that neither technology nor the state nor the market could save us from nuclear conflict, ethnic violence, environmental degradation. And he would say, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy enough. A turning to and a seeking of God is needed. The human race is the human race constantly forgets that he is not God. That's a perspective from a, a macro level. We cannot save ourselves as a race. But from a micro level, there's a famous quote from the late, I guess it would be the 19th century, early 20th century, apologist G.K. Chesterton. He was engaged by the London Times and asked to write an essay on what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton thought thoughtfully about it and then returned a two-sentence response. Dear sirs, what is wrong with the world? I am. Kindest regards, G.K. Chesterton. You see, he could see the darkness within his own life. And knew that the issue was in him as it is within all of us. And this promise, this promise we found in uh, 9-2, is a light that would dawn, that would come upon the people from the outside, not from the inside, not discovering the light within. You see, ultimately we discover that the problem of darkness is much deeper than we thought. But also, 
the promise of the light is much greater. And we find out that ultimately that light is a person. This is where we go back to chapter 9 of Isaiah. Verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and on forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The promise of that light is a son that would be born. A son that is given. And we might say, so what? Baby boys are born every day. What would make this child unique? Well, the truth is, he is truly unique. And his titles are only those befitting the God of the universe. And I'm actually going to go in a little bit of a different order. But first of all, he is the mighty God. The one who speaks and it comes into being. The one for whom nothing is impossible and nothing is too difficult. Even our darkness. He is the wonderful counselor. The one who has all wisdom. Who gives us the best perspective. Because he knows all things and he sees the beginning to the end. In fact, he is the everlasting Father, which speaks of him as creator from all of eternity. And he ultimately is the beginning and the end, and the one who gives us an eternal future. And then he is this Prince of Peace, not only the source of reconciliation between a holy God and man, but reconciliation also between men and men and men and women, and women and women, and ultimately the source of all well-being. That is the Hebrew concept of shalom. He is the prince of that reconciliation. He is the prince of that well-being. And he's promised to accomplish the greatness of his government and peace that will have no end. He's going to reign on David's throne, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever. And ultimately, it will be God and His zeal that will accomplish this. Well, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. That sounds awesome. And I don't use that word flippantly. I mean awesome. That is an awesome being, awesome person. But God's timing is not often our own. And remember, this promise is given somewhere probably after 740 B.C. There's a waiting of 700 plus years for this fulfillment to come. But when it does come, it's not a quick flash as the light or a momentary shining, but ultimately a presence. And this is where we move from the promise to fulfillment. And so you want to flip on over to the Gospel of John. 
starting with verse 1, chapter 1. As we read earlier, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skip on up to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John makes very clear at the beginning of his introduction of, of his gospel that there's something special about this one who is the Word, who is God, who will ultimately put on flesh and dwell among us, who enters this world to live this life. And we're going to talk more about this next week. I love the thought of the fact that God came and dwelled among us, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. But as the light of all mankind, He shines into our darkness. His very presence, His very life shines into our darkness. And Jesus, as the light, as His Word said, is full of truth. And He shines His life to reveal the truth about us. And that can be a scary thing. Flip on over to chapter 3 of John. To verse 19 and verse 20. It says this. This is the verdict. Or this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. But people. That's you and I. Love darkness. Instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil. Hates the light. It will not come into the light. For fear that their deeds will be exposed. Jesus, as the light shines on us to show that our natural tendency is to love darkness, to do what is evil, to do our own thing rather than the will of God. But God, whom it is said in his epistle, 1 John 5, 1, within there, whom there is no darkness, it's our natural tendency to hate the light because we don't want the fact that we love darkness to be exposed. And our pride likes to believe somehow that we have some light to share, to contribute. But the truth is, we're hopelessly and helplessly addicted to ourselves, our will, our sin, our darkness. And we need Him to shine His light into us. But the one who is the light is full of truth. But he's full of grace as well. Yes, his light shines on our darkness to show us our need. It's like a doctor who looks at an x-ray of our lungs and says, yes, there is cancer. And it's deadly. But there is also a cure. He is full of grace. He tells us there is a cure. That is his grace. That he might extend to us what we don't deserve if we walk in the truth of His light. Continuing on, 
chapter 3, verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly and that what we have done has been done in the sight of God. I think more plainly in John's epistle, chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, says this, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I recognize most of you. And I know you know the story. That Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came into the world. He grows up, lives this life completely obedient to the Father. And then he willingly offers up himself to die a painful, publicly humiliating death to take our place for walking in darkness. That we might receive life through him. But walking in the light is not walking in perfection. Again, verse 8 in uh, chapter 1 of 1 John says that if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. Rather, it is confessing our sin. It's being saying, God, you're right. I am lost and I am in darkness without you. And bringing that into the light and letting his blood purify us, forgive our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Full of truth. Full of grace. He shines on us. And He changes us and transforms us as we put our faith in what He's done through His death, His life, death, and resurrection. I love this uh, comment in the second letter of Corinthians chapter 6, chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He has shined that light in our hearts, really to transform us, to make us more like Jesus. And those of us who are followers of Christ, we oftentimes want to take that light to the world, don't we? We want to reflect Him. In fact, Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, will say, you are the light of the world. I want you to reflect that. But as we were, ta- as we were talking about this in, with the worship team, Evie Swanson came up with a great illustration. He says, you know, glow-in-the-dark things, like glow-in-the-dark balls or rings or what have you, you know, those things don't work unless they're exposed to the light. Right? We're like these glow-in-the-dark rings or glow-in-the-dark balls. The more we expose ourselves to the light, the more we can reflect Him. And of course, all analogies break down, right? But we need to continue to expose ourselves to the One who is the light. And ultimately, the light says, 
I am for you. I'm not against you. I am for you. Yes, it exposes our need. But it says you are not, it doesn't say coldly that you're abandoned or that he leaves us without help, without hope. At the end of the day, it shines to give us life. And if you've yet to respond to this light, I really want to encourage you. Think about the fact that God has shined his light into this world for you, for me. And I'll be praying for you at the end of this sermon. But he shines his light to give us light. Give us life, I should say. Jesus will say this in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christmas time is a season we share with our society, right? And as you're driving around, and as you see lights, no matter how gaudy, no matter how obnoxious, let it remind you that the light has come into the world and is shining His light into our hearts to show us the truth, to show us the way, and to show us His light and to give us His light. That's what He wants to do during this Christmas season. To let that light remind you. Let me pray, and then I'm going to ask the worship team to come and close us this morning.